So tonight we're talking about John Bunyan. John Bunyan. Now some of you know John Bunyan, and as I mentioned that, you're thinking about the guy who could drive more uh, railroad stakes than, but that's the wrong Bunyan. John Bunyan is the one we want to talk about. He's famous for writing, uh, he wrote a number of books, but his most famous, of course, is Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory of the Christian life. So he tells it, and he even begins, the, if you remember reading in Pilgrim's Progress, he begins by kind of defending the right to use allegory to teach Christian truth. And so he, he lays it out in terms as if it was a dream. And, and in that, he kind of talks about the Christian life as a, a pilgrim's progress, a, a, a journey towards home in heaven. Uh, it's very memorable because it is such a vivid depiction of events. I think it has to be more attractive, especially for the less educated uh, audience that he would have had, because anyone can pick up that book, and anyone loves a story, and, and, and it's well done in that way. For many years, uh, Christians had very few books. Books were expensive. Um, we're kind of used to things being so easy to produce and copy. Uh, in, the, in his time and for for many for, for generations afterwards, most Christian homes had two books: a Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, maybe if they added a third, Fox's Book of Martyrs might have been in there. But I mean, so I mean, this was one of the most, because in it, it so described the Christian life. It's been translated into over 200 languages. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, you know him, okay, so um, Bunyan wrote in the 1600s, Spurgeon in the 1800s, he said this, next to the Bible, Thy book I value most is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Now, he had a personal library of about 12,000 volumes. Um, Spurgeon read about six books a week. The book that most treasured, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I believe, he says, I have read it through at least 100 times. It is a volume of which I never seem to tire, and the secret of its freshness is that it's so largely compiled of scriptures. So you read about a hundred times, and when you realize, uh, I don't believe Spurgeon made it to 60 years old, and reading six books a week, and all that he read, he must have been reading two, three times. Of course, even as a child, he probably was reading, but still, um, that's how valuable it was. And often in his sermons, he'll refer to, he won't even say, as in Pilgrim's Progress, he'll just say, you know, the, uh, the slew of despond, or something, and just assume people know what he's talking about. Um, the first printing of the book, again, and this is a time of not well-educated people, the first printing was 100,000 copies. And it's been estimated that over 250 million copies have been sold over the, over the centuries, second only really to the King James Bible. So that's something of probably when we most think of him, he did other things, but that's where to realize this man had an incredible impact. Um, again, another Spurgeon quote just about John Bunyan himself. He says, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text. For his very soul is full of the word of God. 
I commend his example to you, beloved. And so uh, Spurgeon, again, loved it. God's people have loved it. It's become, it's a standard. And I, and we've talked through it a couple of times and I, this makes me, I've been motivated to think maybe we need to run it through it again just to remember the lessons that are there. Well, just to step back, let's talk about Bunyan and his life. He was born. Well, that happened in 1628. In fact, uh, November of 1628. He, by the way, he died August 31st, 1688. So 1628 to 1688, he lived about 60 years. We're coming up on the anniversary of his death. Um, his mother died in 1644, so he was 16 years old. When she died, he joined or was called up and drafted into the parliamentary army. This is, you might remember England, there was a, a, a kind of a civil war. Uh, Oliver Cromwell in the parliament uh, against the king. So he served on the parliament side. He served uh, in the rebellion against the king. He uh, served until about 60, till 47 or 48, so three, four years he served in the army. Um, there was an interesting event in that one. They were getting ready for one of their, their battles, and he was supposed to have a position and was ready to go, and, and for some reason someone else was put in his place, and that man died in the very place where, uh, where uh, Bunyan was supposed to be, and that struck him as God's providential care. Like I said, he got out of the army in 47 or 48 of 1600s. In 1649, he married his first wife. We don't even know her name. Um, he had uh, some children with that marriage, later on remarried. In 1651, he comes under the ministry of a pastor named John Gifford. In 1653, he's baptized. Let me tell you about his uh, conversion. He married his first wife. Uh, he was uh, in 1649, so he was uh, 21 years old. Uh, they were both poor. He said between them, they couldn't put together, you know, silverware and a dish for each of them. They, they, they were just absolutely impoverished. Mm -hmm. She brought in uh, uh, her, what they call her dowry. What she brought into the marriage was two books. Um, and that, that had an impact. She, she came from, from a, a, a background of faith that perhaps was a real believer, but certainly was church-going, and that would have been Church of England, so he started going to church with her. As he said, uh, or as it said of him, he, he learned to adore the, quote, high place priest clerk investment. So he, he liked going to church. It was, it was, he, liked, he liked all of the, 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 the stuff of the church service. But he continued... Uh, with, frankly, a very offensive behaviors. Uh, he was so strong in his cursing. At one point, a woman reproved him, reproved him, even though she was a pretty wretched woman herself. But she said, what kind of an influence are you going to have on the children in the village? And so that troubled him. Um, he was put to shame by her and swore no more after that. So no, it's, no he kind of cleaned up morally. About the same time, he was influenced by a poor but godly man to read the Bible. And so he started reading the Bible. And so people thought, okay, he's going to church. He stopped swearing. He's reading the Bible. Oh, he's become a godly man. No. Um, he was a sinner. 
who was reading his Bible, stopped swearing, and was attending church. But he was lost. Um, let me read something from... He, he wrote a book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is his spiritual autobiography. And in there he says this, Now I blessed the condition of the dog and toad, and counted the estate of everything that God had made far better than this dreadful state of mind. Better to be a toad than, than, than himself, such as my companion was. Yet gladly would I have been in the condition of a dog or horse, for I knew they had no soul to perish under the everlasting weights of hell for sin, as mine was like to do. So he was going to church, he was reading his Bible, he was hearing some things, but it's, he, he, it was clear to him, he was lost, 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 and living in agony over it. He was a tinker. You know, as he repaired metal stuff. In particular, he would travel uh, from town to town and, and fix pots and pans. We're so used to, you know, if we if the screw comes out on the handle of a fry pan, well, you chuck it and go out and buy a new set at the state fair next year. Uh, maybe not, but we're used to just throw it out. But back then, if you, your pot got a hole in it or something, you'd wait for the tinker to come, and he would uh, bring his anvil with him and repair your pot and make it useful again. By the way, think about carrying an anvil from village to village. I was surprised. I, 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 was, I couldn't find any much more with the time I had, but I came across a couple of articles that indicated his anvil had been discovered in the early 1900s. It was in a pile of scrap iron. Someone had bought it, was going to send it off to, to be melted down, the whole pile of it, and they saw this thing, and right on there, it, it his name had been engraved, uh, kind of simply, but it was his his anvil. So so he would carry that. He would do these repairs. He traveled to a local village called uh, Bedford. And while he was there, he over he, there were some women, you know, sitting outside and talking. I don't know if they were doing needlework or who knows. Maybe they were um, chucking peas or something outside. But they were kind of gathered there outside their homes and sitting in chairs and conversing. When he heard their conversation, it was the conversation of real Christians. And it just struck him how different it was from his whole way of thinking. They, they were talking about the things of the Lord with sincerity and delight. And it was striking to him. Um, so he listened to that. So he kind of snooped and listened, not in a negative way, but he wanted to hear what kind of things they were talking about. And, and it just really challenged him. Um, it helped him to realize that he wasn't born again. And eventually, uh, he, he continued on, and he started being rather open with people and saying, boy, I am lost. I am in wretched condition. And, and some of them could just see he was agonizing of soul, and they pointed him to their pastor, John Gifford. The amazing thing is he went through four years of anxious grief, wrestling with the lostness of his condition. Just you know, and knowing so, you know, coming to understand, listening to real preaching, being around real believers, but recognizing he didn't have Christ. He had not, to use what we've been learning in the Gospel of John, he hadn't eaten of Christ. He hadn't drunk of the water of, of life. It was that was clear to him. And the problem, in a big way, is he agonized, and, and, and he at times was thoroughly persuaded <laughs> that somehow he had committed the unforgivable sin. Uh, 
that, that, that God couldn't and wouldn't accept him. And so he wrestled, and that's why he said uh, the toads had it better than he did, because they don't have to worry about eternity. You know, they're, they're, when they're gone, they're gone, but I've got to face an eternal God, and I know he's, his wrath is on me, and I'm lost, lost, lost. It kind of reminds me of Martin Luther. Remember how he wrestled with, if, if God is true and if God is righteous, I am under his wrath, and there's no way of making him happy. And so, remember in the story, when Christian leaves the city of destruction, and he he you know meets evangelist, and evangelist sends him you know go towards the wicked gate, and he goes. And do you remember all along he's carrying the weight of his sin until he comes to the cross, and when he comes to the cross, it finally falls off, and I think it falls, it just rolls right into the empty tomb. But for the early part of that journey, he is carrying around this heavy, heavy burden. I think as he wrote that, two things are in, in, in Bunyan's mind. One, the burden of sin. He, he was living that guilt for four years. And so, you know, it wasn't a, a quick and easy process for him. One time, I think it was Spurgeon who was telling a, a lady about uh, John Bunyan. She said, oh, you, you follow him on that? Oh, no, his, his thinking's all wrong. An evangelist sent him the wrong way. He should have said not to the wicked gate. He should have just told him right on the spot to trust in Christ. He, why did he have to carry around the, that load of guilt for so long? And Spurgeon thought, well, she's right. But, but that was that was Bunyan's experience. He, he just couldn't settle the matter of sin before Christ. And that burden he was carrying, I think it was the feel of the, the anvil. So he knew what it meant to go on a journey with a heavy weight. And that to him was just a picture of his own sin. And so um, that's that's the story that led out to it. And I think that's in his background. Four years of just feeling guilt, despair, that he was under, that he perhaps had committed, the, he must have committed the unpardonable sin and there was no way God would accept it. A key text of scripture, his text that transformed his life was John chapter 6, verse 37. You've heard that before. And so here's what it said in the New King James. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and he who comes to me I will by no means cast out. He read it in the King James. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. In Pilgrim's Progress, he mentions that. Goodwill. Um, spoke this in, in, in bringing comfort to Christian, the pilgrim. We make no objections against any, notwithstanding all that they have done before they come hither. They are in no wise cast out. Does that sound familiar? So John, you know, it's, uh, Christian was, oh, can I, can I have access? Can I enter in? And we make no distinction. Uh, they are in no wise cast out. When he wrote Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he said this, This scripture did, almost, did also most sweetly visit my soul, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. See, for four years he wrestled with the fact that God would in no wise accept him. And he found out, no, no, no. If anyone comes to Christ, he will in no, he will no way cast him out. 
he will welcome him, not just not cast him out. He goes on and says, Oh, the comfort that I have had from this word, in, from this world, in no wise, as, as who should say, by no means, for no thing, whatever he had done. Um, but Satan continued to accuse, continued to batter him. He would greatly labor to pull this promise from me, telling of me that Christ did not mean me. So that's what he will. Well, that's good for everybody else, but not for me. And such as I, but sinners of a, of a lower rank that had not done as I had done. But I should answer him against Satan. Here is this word, no such exception, but him that comes, him, any him, him that cometh to me, I will in those wise cast out. And so his his burden of guilt, as this passage just awakened him, he puts it into um, the Pilgrim's Progress, but this was his passage. Later on, he uh, says again in uh, Grace Abounding, Now therefore I was glad to catch at that word, which yet I had feared I had no ground or right to own, and even to leap into the bosom of that promise that yet I feared did shut its heart against me. So I kept wrestling. It, it, this promise can't be for me. Now also I should labor to take the word of God had laid it, as God had laid it down without restraining the natural force of one syllable thereof, of what did I now see in that blessed sixth of John? And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So God's word kept, you know, his guilt and Satan kept hammering his guilt. But you're bad. You're bad. You're really bad. You cannot be acceptable before God. And then that blessed sixth of John, him that cometh to me, I will in no way cast out. I will in no wise cast out. So God's word, this verse was the transformation that took him from lost to save, from despairing to rejoicing. As a result of his conversion, he eventually went into the ministry. In 1658, his first wife died and left him with four children. In 1659, he married Elizabeth, so we know his wife's second wife's name. In 1660, he was imprisoned uh, until 1672. So for 12 years, he was put in prison for unlicensed preaching. So in England, they, uh, you know, this was a battle that was going back and forth, but this was during a time where if you're not a licensed and approved by the state church, the Church of England, it's illegal to preach. Um, they heard that he would be preaching in a, in a barn, and so they went there, and uh, the sheriff... Or, you know, came in and arrested him. Though he looked around and thought, "There's no swords, there's no weapons here." So, and so he brought him back to the jail and said, "I'll make you a deal. If you just promise me you won't preach again, I'll let you go. We can be, we can forget this thing." He declined. In fact, he was sentenced. I think it was for three months or six months. But he continued to. Um, Refuse to promise them he wouldn't go back to preaching, so he spent 12 years in prison. And again, he's thinking about how do I provide for my family? And it really broke his heart. His uh, one of his children, Mary, was was uh, blind, and and, and he and poor Mary was always on his heart. And so he did what he could to try and um, provide for them. And one of the things he did while he was in prison is he made shoelaces. 
and, and so he would make shoelaces and sell them and then try to raise some kind of money for his family. Interesting enough, depending on who the jailer was and what was going on at the time, at times he would be released to go out, preach in an illegal service, and come back to jail afterwards. And he preached in jail to, and, and led many to Christ during that time. So yeah, so originally it was a, a three-month uh, sentence that extended to 12 years because he, he just could not say, no, I'm not going to preach. He's, he, he said, if you let me, in matter of fact, at one point, I think he said, if you release me today, tonight I'll be preaching. And so he stayed in prison for 12 years. Um, what's interesting is, is, is we might look at that and say what a tragedy that was, but Many of his books were written, Grace Abounding, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, were written in prison. You know, so that kind of gave him the time. And again, he ministered in the prison. He preached to many, and sometimes he got out and preached. So he had a writing ministry, and he had a preaching ministry while in prison. I should mention that his, when he was young, as a child, his parents kind of exceptionally, unusually, sent him to school for a couple of years so he could learn to read and write. And then uh, by the time he married his first wife, he'd pretty much forgotten how to read and write. And, but they had those two books, and so he started learning again and, and, and rebuilding his skills. Um, and, it, and yet now he has written probably the book that is one of the most famous and popular books in all of history, in English history, um, from a guy who was barely literate. I think we can see the work of the Lord there. Um, by the way, he was released uh, in 1672. Actually, in January of 1672, his church called him as pastor while he was in prison. And several months later, he was released, and then he went to actually be the pastor of the church that had called him as pastor. Normally, we don't go calling prisoners in prison <laughs> to be pastor, but... Uh, but that was their confidence in him, and, and again, he was having a, he was pastoring them even from prison. He was released, and then later on, he was put back in prison uh, for another six months or so. There was this political back and forth, and I won't go through the British history of uh, religion at that time, but but that was some of the struggle. But his work in prison and his writing ministry reminds me of the Apostle Paul. Thank God, Paul had time to be in prison because we got some great epistles out of that time. And thank God um, John Bunyan was in prison because we got Pilgrim's Progress from that time. Uh, at one point, John Owen was one of the, was the, what we consider the, the great Puritan of the uh, uh, theologian. He was considered perhaps the greatest theologian that's come out of uh, Britain. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest thinker that's come out of America. Um, John Owen loved to hear John Bunyan preach and and someone once had, I think maybe the king that said you are John Owen why do you go hear that tinker preach and, and his comment was I would trade all my learning if I could speak to souls as he does um, so so I mean again his style his, his you know he was not an educated man in that sense but he was educated in the things of the Lord and could speak to hearts. And again, I, I really encourage, if you haven't uh, 
Red Pilgrim's Progress in a while. Pick it up. I'll look at it a little bit. If you like, you can watch the cartoon versions that are on TV or on YouTube. Uh, you get the idea. It, it, it teaches lessons. It, it, and the names you know, are not so subtle. Uh, the Slew of Despond. And I, that's one of the first ones. First, on his, I, Before he even gets to the cross, he's got that weight of guilt. And he gets off track and he falls into the slew, this, this, this muck. And an evangelist says, what are you doing in there? And kind of, well, and he said, why didn't you step on the stones? What stones? Here, the promises of God. If you just stayed to the you know, kept your feet on the promises of God, you wouldn't be in this despond. Uh, and, and, and others. Uh, giant despair. And, uh, remember, that was another thing where they're in this castle and thinking, oh no, we're going to be executed tomorrow. And finally, John, John says, uh, the Christian says, oh wait a minute. I've got the keys in my pocket. <laughs> well, why did you say... Again, the promises of God to release them from the, you know, the, the giant of despair. Well, John Bunyan did die. Let me tell you something of his story. One describes it this way. His, his end was characteristic. It was brought on by exposure when he was engaged in an act of charity. A father and son had quarreled, weren't talking, would have nothing to do with each other. And so John Bunyan, uh, I think went to London, to work out a reconciliation. On his way home, he was caught in a terrible thunderstorm, soaked to the skin, and uh, riding on horseback. And uh, he became dreadfully ill. Uh, so as a result of that, chill came on, failing health, already weakened by illness. Uh, he brought on a fever. In 10 days, he was dead. His last words, he spoke before his death. Take me, for I come to thee. What was the promise? Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. His very final words he spoke, take me, I'm coming to you. <coughs> so claiming that sixth of John, verse 37, when come unto me, I will in no wise cast him out. Uh, Frank Borb, again, is, is one who's kind of got me started on these things, and then I read others to get a fuller story. Here's what he says in conclusion of that. The words that had lit up the path of his pilgrimage illumined also the valley of the shadow of death. The words that opened to him the realms of grace opened also the gates of glory. <coughs> words that had welcomed him to Wicked Gate welcomed him also to Celestial City. So John Bunyan has, has probably had one of the most influential, can I call them theologians, ministers at least, in, in, in history. And it wasn't through his great education. It was through God's great grace and mercy. He started in a very hard way. Took a long battle before he could fully understand what God's grace meant to him. And he thought it just couldn't be that God would accept one such as he. 
done that verse. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And he thought, I'm a him. I'm coming. And I'll trust him to not cast me out. And so again, I think that's exactly what was in his mind as he spoke those final words. Take me, I'm coming. We thank God for John Bunyan. Thank God for God's word. And, and that's why I chose some of the songs. That's why I wanted to sing the, the song we sang this morning, uh, Just As I Am, fit this morning's text. And to me, uh, I just could not not sing it with uh, John Bunyan because that's the whole point, Just As I Am. A wretch, a wretch, but saved by God's incredible mercy. So that's John Bunyan. And my next text, I'm not sure. Or uh, uses some people, I'm thinking, I could mention some of these, but I think most people wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about, because some of the people that he thought were pretty common, you know, he likes to point out, well, they're buried or mentioned in Westminster Abbey, and that may not mean something to us Americans as much. So anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll bring some others but uh, to see how God uses. But I challenge you to think, too, what, is there a passage of Scripture that grabbed you? Is there a passage of scripture that, you know, I think we might learn from John Bunyan. Maybe you're dealing with someone sometime that says, well, God would never take someone like me. And you might say, well, can I tell you, I know, I read of a fellow, I heard of a fellow that really wrestled with the same issue. And you know what verse really helped him? John 6, 37. He comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you're wrestling with that issue in your own life, Hear that truth and take comfort in it. The cross opens the door to any who will come to Christ, flee to Christ, and find welcome. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for what you did in the life of this, your child, John Bunyan. Thank you for the influence he's had on so many. Father, most importantly, thank you for your word that changed his life and guided his life. And the brilliance of his writing and his insights is in direct proportion to his faithfulness to your word. So we thank you for that, Father. And now as we come to remember Jesus Christ in this Lord's table, we ask your blessing on this in Jesus' name.